I got a text message on Wednesday morning from a friend. He's about my age, maybe a little older. He's, his kids are out of the house. He's got a 20-something daughter who just got married, just graduated from a master's program. I haven't seen him in a while. This crazy COVID year has kept us apart. The text just read, morning, can you give me a call? So my mind did what your mind tends to do with that sort of text. I wondered, is he mad about something? Masks? Is he sad about something? A relationship? Does he just want to borrow a screwdriver? And my, the, the, the circles of my imagination were getting wider and wider, and I decided I'd put an end to all of this meaning-making, so I called him as quickly as I could. Uh, Clearly, our phones were connected, but there was no greeting. There was no word of hello, but a sort of muffled sound. I thought I heard him crying. I waited. He, moments later, blurted, hang with me, and he continued to cry. He sort of pushed through some of his tears to say, it's my daughter, They found a mass on her heart, and he he cried, and I waited. And we're going to get together this week after a doctor's appointment. We'll be together to pray, to do the journey together. His text on Wednesday and that story made me think of the Howells Janet fighting cancer with Tim and chemo, waiting for a surgery, who received the word of the cancer while she was in the hospital, but Tim had to wait outside in his truck in the parking lot because they couldn't be together due to COVID. And it makes me think of the the Widovines with little Asher this week, 13-month-old little guy with a 12 our surgery. It makes me think of the family whose funeral, I'll, the, 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 I'll do the funeral for the father and the husband this Saturday who died of COVID, but due to COVID, they couldn't grieve the way we need to grieve in community. And, and that made me think of all of the stories that are a part of this online pillar community or who show up in the pews on a Sunday morning. Lots of us have lots of reasons to be so grateful, to rejoice and celebrate, and plenty of us we know pain too. We know hurt too. And, and, and it's okay to hold them both. We don't have to ignore the one in favor of the other or blow off the one and devolve into the other. Pain, heartache, the stunning, consistent story of humanity will find us all. Maybe you know a pain now like some of the friends I've named or maybe you have known a pain and surely all of us will experience a pain. So I have a letter I'd like to offer to you. It was transcribed by St. John, written by Jesus Christ himself and recorded in the book of Revelation. Eugene Peterson calls this letter Training in Suffering. So listen with me to the letter. I, John, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day 
And I heard a loud voice like a trumpet behind me say, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face shone like the sun at full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he reached out his hand and said to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Write what you see, what is, and what is to take place after this. As for the seven stars in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came back to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you're rich. I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Beware. The devil will throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll experience affliction. Be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To those who conquer, they will not be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's, it's the, the stunning vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and then the four verses holding the letter to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2. This stunning, glorious vision of Jesus gives way to the insufferable situation of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor, a part of the Roman Empire, known for their situation of persecution, the Roman Empire really let everyone do whatever they wanted. The moral standards were very low in the Roman Empire. There was only one requirement, that you bend the knee and bow the head in deference to Caesar. The Christians, on the other hand, had high moral standards and refused to bow their heads in worship of Caesar, and so Rome went after them. Rome devoured them. It's been said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the Smyrnan Christians spilled their blood. All week long, I've been trying to find our way into this story. We're, we're just not in the same circumstance as the Christians in Smyrna. And, yet, and then I came across this line, this line in that letter, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you're rich. Somehow both can coexist. Your affliction, it means pressure. When pressure mounts and pain is real and heartache happens, even though you're rich, loneliness 
does not discriminate tax brackets. Heartache is willing to show up even in the largest houses. Anxiety is willing to enter uninvited all of our parties. We can simultaneously be grateful for so much and celebrate so many things and rejoice and be honest about the pain, the hurt, the heartache, the sadness. This letter is for all of us. Training and suffering, just three words and then we'll come to the table. Solidarity, integrity, and hope. This is how the letter begins. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's the Bible's way of saying what our Sunday school teachers sang. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's what the psalmist was after when he, when he prayed, where can I go from your presence? How can I flee from your spirit? If I, make, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the morning and settle on the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Solidarity, the first and the last. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the book, The Hallelujah Banquet, puts it like this. To describe Christ as the first and the last is to say that he includes everything within himself. He's at the beginning and at the end. All that occurs between occurs in the context of his presence. However bereft we seem to be of his presence in our pain, he's not gone off and left us. Existence does not occur outside the confines of of Christ's first and last. We are hemmed in by his grace. We are hemmed in by his grace. He's the first and the last. We're hemmed in by his grace. Solidarity. Jesus Christ is the first and the last, and nothing we experience in life is experienced outside of the generous gift of his presence. Have you noticed that instinct so many of us have when you yourself or you know of someone else who's experiencing something the tendency to invite them into conversation with someone who's experienced something similar. I'm all the time in conversation with college students who didn't get accepted to grad school. They want to talk to me because I was rejected by every one of the med schools. I'm all the time in conversation with people who are battling one version of depression or another because I've been pretty open about my journey with depression. There's something about sitting with someone else who's gone through it already who's been there already. There's something, something encouraging, something, something hopeful, something peaceful, knowing to say Jesus Christ is the first and the last is to say he's been there, he's gone through that, he's with you. Solidarity. Uh, Peterson in that same book, The Hallelujah Banquet, tells the story of a friend of his who during World War II was flying from Austria to North Africa and his plane, he was a fighter pilot, his plane experienced engine problems and he was going down into the Mediterranean Sea. Peterson says he didn't have any of those life flashes before your eyes sort of experiences, but this rather is what he says. I'm dying and nobody knows it. Nobody knows I'm going in. Nobody will ever know what happened. Nobody knows. And then Peterson goes on. Jesus, in effect, says to the suffering, I know. 
I know everything that's taking place. I know from my own experience, and I know because I'm with you in your experience. I suffered. I died. I know your suffering and your death. Solidarity. Training in suffering requires us to see Christ in our midst, see Christ in our pain. He's the first and the last. We're hemmed in by grace. Solidarity, and then the second word, this training in suffering, the second word, integrity. I'm really only using that word because it rang with solidarity. What I mean is be faithful. This is what Jesus says to the church, the suffering church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have affliction. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful. I'm I'm just going to invite you back to the basic practices of the Christian faith. Scripture, prayer, worship, sacrament, fellowship, the basic commitments of Christians for 2,000 years. We live in such a loud world. People using the church for one thing, like a political demographic to win an election. People accusing the church of other things for not being saying this or standing up for that. And we've got to be attentive and receive the using and the accusing for what it is. But all of it, and, and, then, and then the pressure on us is to appear woke, to, to be aware, to, to stand up. And all of that, apart from the basic acts of Christian faithfulness, are just adding to the noise. You can't really post on Facebook as the authority on the Christian faith if you don't immerse yourself in the Christian story. Be faithful unto death. So Kristen and I, the year after we were married, that was 2002, the summer before my senior year in seminary, we moved for the summer to a very small town in southwest Minnesota called Ellsworth. I was there to serve as an intern for 10 or 11 weeks of the church called Bethel Reformed Church. I was going to be their pastor. They didn't have a pastor. I thought for the summer I could play one. Uh, It was a church surrounded by corn and beans. If you squinted just so, the, the soybean fields and the, corn, the feed corn fields looked, with, with the tractors out in the fields, looked a little bit like sailboats out on the ocean, but you had to squint. I think I got paid that summer, but I know I ate that summer. It seemed like every day we'd open the door, and there on the porch was the white paper wrapping some gloriously large T-bone steak or cartons of eggs or blocks of cheese. There was more of us when we moved back from my senior year in seminary. I preached every Sunday morning and every Sunday night the best I could, and all week long I visited the Cordles and the Groans and the Stubies and the DeBoers, and I visited them because they served apple pie with cheese on top. It was a great summer. I, I, I was playing pastor, so I joined the Pastors Association in that region of George and Little Rock and Ellsworth. And as part of the Pastors Association, I was invited slash required to preach two consecutive Sundays at the local nursing home. I remember it being called the Prairie View Nursing Home. So it's probably the sixth or seventh week of our internship out there. We, Kristen and I, drove our tan Honda Accord to the Prairie View Nursing Home. We got into the lobby where all of these lazy boys had been wheeled and and 
elderly people sitting on their lazy boys, and Kristen sort of opened our worship service by playing the piano, plunking along to Jesus Loves Me and This Little Light of Mine, and they absolutely loved it. And then I stood up to preach, and they absolutely fell asleep. Their heads bobbed, their eyes closed. Some of them were even drooling, and I, I was feeling all of the shame and commingling with anger, so I quickly gave a bad benediction and darted out of there as fast as I could. My biggest problem, though, I had to do it again the next Sunday. I figured to myself, if they're going to fall asleep on a sermon, it's not going to be my sermon. So I recited for them the Sermon on the Mount. If they're going to fall asleep, they're going to have to fall asleep on Jesus himself. So there we go. Tan Honda Accord. We get into the Prairie View Nursing Home. Kristen's plunking away. Jesus loves me again, and they Love it, and I stand up to preach, and I hardly get through the first blessing of the Beatitudes, and their heads bob, their eyes close, they start snoring, but I don't care, I'm going hard, I'm going after it, I get into the, uh, you've heard that it was said, and then, and then to that, and there's, they're fast asleep, and then into that part on prayer where Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, our Father, and their heads lift, their eyes open, and like the hallelujah chorus, they join, our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. They prayed the whole prayer. They even stumbled over that part. Forgive us our debts or forgive us those who trespass. You know that part. They prayed the whole thing. And then when the prayer was done, their heads down, their eyes closed, the snoring and the drooling. It was amazing. With their bodies failing and their minds fleeting, they were still able to pray because they devoted themselves year in and year out to daily acts of Christian faithfulness so that when the end was near, they could still pray, be faithful. Commit yourself to scripture, to prayer, to word, sacrament, fellowship. Be faithful unto death. Solidarity and integrity, it's training and suffering. And then the last word, hope. Hope is the animating instinct of Christian living. Hope, not a daydreaming fantasy of some better life somewhere else, but, but rather the, the call to wake up in the morning, the call to get going each day, the call to stay steadfast each week. Hope. Hope is like the, the rope for the water skier held taut. If not, you'll sink. Hope is like the belay line for the mountain climber. If, if you, can, you have the courage to make your next move because you're held in the rope of hope. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says, and you will receive the crown of life. There's two kinds of crowns in the Bible. There's the crown the king would wear and there's the crown the Olympic runner would win. It's the second. Be faithful unto death and you'll receive the crown of life, hope. I like these words from Jürgen Moltmann on hope. German theologian, faith, wherever it develops into hope, causes not rest, but unrest. Not patience, but impatience. It does not calm the unquiet heart, but is itself this unquiet heart in humanity. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. I love that. The goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present hope. 
hope for the friend who texted me on Wednesday morning and hope for the howls and hope for the widowings and hope for you. Whatever story of pain you know, hope. Seek the things that are above. Jenna has been offering and we have been saying this season of Eastertide, seek the things that are above. Hope as a way of enduring today, as a way of getting up in the morning, as a way of making your way out in the world faithfully. St. John died, some say, around 100 A.D. This vision from Revelation was recorded in the early 90s. And Pastor John, St. John, died around 100. Several decades later, there was a new pastor in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was known at the time to be the only living person who knew personally the apostles. Wouldn't it be amazing to have Polycarp as your pastor? The persecution in Rome did not relent. They were after Polycarp too. They killed a man named Germanicus, thinking that would sort of silence the Christians, but nothing changed. They kept refusing to bend the knee to Caesar, so they figured if we get Polycarp, if we kill him, the Christians will run. If he renounces his faith, they'll, they'll just go away. So they sent two guards to go get old Pastor Polycarp. His friends were worried about him. He didn't seem to be all that worried, so they, they begged him to hide in another town, so he was willing. He was hiding, but some others sold out Pastor Polycarp, so these two armed guards came to the old man, 86 years old, by the way. They came to the old man. They knocked on the door. They pushed it down. Polycarp greeted them generously, asked if they'd like a meal and something to drink while he prayed for an hour. So they ate and drank while he prayed, and when he was done, they put him on a donkey. That might sound familiar. They rode him into town. That might sound familiar, too. They, they dragged him towards the arena where they tied him to the stake. The proconsul, as he was on his way into the arena, there, there said to have been a voice from heaven that said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. They tied him to the stake. The proconsul said, Renounce your faith and save your life. And then Polycarp said so famously, 80 and six years I've served my master and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior now? So the proconsul ordered the crowd to gather the wood. They gathered the wood at the feet of old pastor Polycarp tied to that stake. And they lit it on fire to watch Polycarp burn. As the story goes, though, the fire formed an arch around pastor Polycarp. And he was not consumed, so they ran him through with, a, with swords and knives. And it said that his blood gushed out so much that it put the fire out. While the fire was burning, Polycarp prayed. And history has recorded for us his prayer. I've asked my friend if he would read it for us. Listen to this. O oh Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, 
through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. And I don't know about you, but I want to run through a wall with Pastor Polycarp. I thank you, God, for numbering me among the martyrs, allowing me to carry the cup of your Son and, to the point, share in his resurrection and the immortality of the Holy Spirit. Hope. Hope wakes us up in the morning. Hope gets us going. Not a fantasy daydream about a better life some other day, but rather it stabs inexorably into the present, into your life now. Training in suffering. Solidarity. Christ is with you. Integrity. Be faithful. And hope you will receive the crown of life. So hold your head up high and your shoulders strapped back. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.